Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Shinchen Mehta to the show. Shinchen is the Chief Information Officer and Head of Digital Technology and Innovation at Wells Fargo. He's responsible for all technology underlying the company's corporate strategy, digital platform, and innovation. Prior to this, Shintan was CIO of Wells Fargo's Digital Ecosystem, a position he held since 2017. In this role, he was responsible for leading the delivery of all digital experiences and capabilities for Wells Fargo businesses and its 70 million customers. Previously, he was Global Chief Technology Officer at Walgreens, where he was responsible for product management, design, engineering, and operations across retail, pharmacy, and healthcare businesses. Shintan has an MS in computer science from the University of Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Shintan, if you don't mind, uh, can you share with our listeners more about your role with Wells Fargo? Yeah, of course. So you, you already kind of touched on that, Shelley. The, the role uh, encompasses leading a group called Strategy Digital and Innovation. And I mean, I'm not the only CIO. I'm one of the 15 million CIOs at Wells Fargo, but essentially the group is responsible for uh, focusing on a corporate strategy, which is more outward focused in terms of what we do five years out, six years out from where we are today. Uh, work that we do with academia. So we are a partner of the Stanford Human Centered AI Group. We do a lot of work with MIT Watson Research Lab. And then the digital component of this whole uh, ecosystem is all around the consumer facing as well as client facing experiences like the online banking, the mobile app, uh, and the AI and ML capability. So it's it's the, the best way to look at it is from a timeline, time funnel standpoint, strategies, things which are five plus years out, innovation is what we are doing now. We have a strong hypothesis. We want to test it with customers. And then digital is sort of scaling it out to mainstream customers uh, for production consumption. So that's essentially the encompassing sort of view. You know, one of the one of the things that we talked about before the show that I think is a, a pretty interesting question that you've posed is, you know, when it comes to deep tech work, is banking a good place for that? So I I think it is a good place for that. I think one of the one of the ways to look at it is if you see the core of banking, uh, which is the the way I would frame it uh, in my own words is, four hundred years ago, people figured out a way that there is a need for like bringing capital to where there is a need for money, right? And how do you match those things together? At the core of it, banking hasn't changed, but the way we manifest that sort of basic necessity of uh, sort of facilitating transaction, matching capital to where a need is, and then everything which goes around it, like moving money, doing sort of uh, financial health planning, life cycle management, those have evolved culturally as well, as well as the way it is offered from a technology standpoint. The other, other and, and what that leads you to is short of like a completely new radical business, technology is the only thing which is constantly changing for this business. Um, the, the way your interactions are evolving, the way your experiences are evolving, they're predominantly defined by the technology of the day in question. So to answer your primary question, Patrick, yes, I would say technology roles in banking are interesting and challenging, as would be true for all cases. Not every role would be as uh, sort of breakthrough in terms of doing new things, but for most part, banking is financial services is leading uh, technology evolution in the in the world. 
It does make me wonder. There's a couple articles, not too recently, but not too far in the past, about the effectiveness of the investments that have gone on in the banking space from a technology standpoint and the ROI. I think we all recognize that there is obviously some very serious challengers in the startup space. But what do you think is the biggest challenge for the existing banking players, the you know, the big names that we all recognize? What are their biggest intrinsic risks and challenges and actually leveraging technology and, and the investments that the that they're making? I would say by far the most biggest sort of challenge of bogey, so to speak, would be speed. Like how quickly do you adapt to incoming sort of insight? whether it's customer feedback driven or your own internal processes, which will reveal new sort of insight about customers' expectations. The, the, the advantage uh, a new player has is they don't have an existing cash cow. They don't have an existing legacy money-making business, which they have to care for while they are building a completely new offering. Uh, there is an established player, every industry, banking is no exception to it, but every, every industry uh, established player will have to do bimodal thinking where they are thinking about how do I protect what I have to some extent and extend it or build something new. And that gets in the way. If you are comfortable as an organization culturally to cannibalize your own business because you know the, the macro conditions of the overall market is drifting and changing, I think those will have a lot more strength. Those kind of businesses have a lot more strength. But yeah, I mean, by and large, most people are uncomfortable doing that. Most companies are uncomfortable doing that. Even the sort of what were startups five years ago and are now established players also go through the same life cycle, which is like you have an existing revenue stream. And if you do something, it might actually cannibalize that. And how do you make a decision in that context? So that gets in the way. It's interesting when you, uh, these, not, uh, these startups, their advantage is not having a cash cow. Yeah. Rethinking the problem from a very fresh perspective without having any constraint. Like, the legacy is a constraint. It has an advantage. It gives you a, a fresh source of revenue or a constant source of revenue that you can innovate on top of, but it also gives you a sort of an anchor that you have to work with in terms of new thinking. It's uh, very common from the innovator's dilemma standpoint, right, of defending what you have and, and how do you you know make that jump. What do you think are some of the things that successful banks are, are doing that to really I don't want to say set themselves free, but uh, to be a little bit more risky, because I think that's that's the the continuum that you're you're talking about is that risk. And how much of that? How much change have you seen in the last eighteen months? Because I think I've said it a number of times: the status quo isn't as safe as it used to be. Right in 2019, taking big risks probably weren't going to be listened to very well uh, by the you know chief executives. But now it. it it seems like I would imagine there, there's more consideration of, of that. There is, there is. I think, I think so the structural piece that has to be in place for you to be able to uh, sort of experiment and experiment is the right term for it. I think the, the fundamental thing is you have to experiment with new customer offerings. But the, the structural piece which has to be in place is how can you contain those experiments in a way from a timing standpoint, from a time perspective, how can you contain them so that you have a clean do more of it or don't do it, like fail fast type construct around it. And then when you graduate something from an experiment to there is there is value to this, there is economic value to be sort of built from a customer standpoint, as well as some value to be captured from a firm standpoint, 
how long it takes you to sort of capitalize on it. How do you get out into the market in front of customers and start uh, sort of deploying it? I would say we are a V and collectively as an industry, uh, the Royal V, we are doing better than we were two years ago. Different banks are at different places in terms of the sophistication and the risk appetite. Uh, so I would say we would we would not be the sort of the ones at the moment doing like massive investments in adjacent possible business opportunities. But then you see some of our peers doing that already, whether it's Goldman or whether it's JP Morgan or in Europe, there are lots of banks like Santander and, and a few other banks who are going beyond the traditional scope of what you would call financial services and going after adjacencies. And I, I think that would hold true. Experimentation is the only way you can prove a hypothesis short of like burning a lot of capital and realizing that you're wrong. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you plan five years out. So it's so interesting, right? Because technology, you can't even really plan for six months from now. So are you having to revisit that plan all the time? And and you mentioned failing fast as well. I'm just curious how that all works together. Yeah, how they reconcile. So, so to be fair, I use the term, the strategy component is to look at what will likely happen five years out. So that's a very hypothesis-oriented perspective, opinionated perspective on where the industry is going in the next, next five years with what we know today, based on what we know, what is going on, whether it's from a technology conference standpoint or just the industry uh, changes or regulatory changes. We take a, a perspective that what banking will look like in, say, 2030. And then in that context, what should we be thinking about? What should we be working on? We work backwards from that perspective. right? And the plan is usually... Uh, loses fidelity as you go further in time. And that is why we kind of create those horizons picture, which is like horizon one is we know we have to do this. It's right now, right here, we have to build it and we have to launch it, which is the digital ecosystem. But then there is the horizon two, which is we have a strong hypothesis that there is a value here, but we are still figuring out how to sort of offer it to a customer. How do you actually uh, create that experience, which is effective in the market? And then there is horizon three, which is all the strategic component, which is like, we know at some point we have to do something about it. We just don't know what to do about it yet. Uh, clearly enough, like uh, the example I would give you is quantum trading. Everybody talks about quantum computing. Everybody talks about how it will radically change the way we do uh, sort of automated trading in, in capital markets. But nobody knows exactly how it will pan out. One, because it's very academic. The conversation is very academic. Uh, and two, it is it is not manifest yet. Even the early version of it, it is not manifest. But we know it's coming. Those are the kind of things you think about in the five-year, six-year out realm, saying, okay, assuming some of these assumptions hold to be true, what is it that we should be doing so that we can actually be a participant in that market, that ecosystem at that point? Interesting. Okay, thank you. So do you see quantum computing? What's your take on that in the next five to 10 I would say I would say the uh, sort of the fundamental science will catch up in three four years. I think industrialization and like full blown use is a little further out than that. I think we will definitely see uh, some very specialized use cases being deployed, like whether it's cryptography as an example, which is a one use case where traditional computers are going to become uh, sort of obsolete in the sense of quantum mathematical cryptography and so forth. So that is going to be that is going to be definitely first area where it actually will show up. It will also likely, like I said, trading. It will it will show up as well in some small pockets and small subsets. It won't be general purpose computing, 
at least initially. I don't think it will be. Uh, it, you're not going to replace your desktop laptop with whatever with a com quantum computer anytime soon. But specialized uh, sort of interactions, specialized computational situations, I definitely think quantum will have a big role to play in the next six, seven years, more or less. Uh, the other component which has to be accounted for is the operational cost of running a quantum computer. Right now, beyond nation states and a few universities at the, and, and maybe some companies uh, of our scale, there aren't that many companies who can actually run quantum computing of any, any kind. Uh, so there is, there's a huge gap between practicality and sort of academically what is possible, theoretically what is possible. So that has to improve as well. When I usually speak about innovation, I think about... Uh... The synergies of what, like you mentioned, uh, what your customers want, what the business wants. I almost without fail cite the ATM as one of the greatest innovations uh, of the most recent past. Just you move value to the customer where it actually reduces your cost and then you charge them for that as well. Right. So it's, it not only is a cost saver, but it also is a revenue generator, which is, I think, uh, you know, the ninja move of innovations. Is there anything that you see in, in the banking industry or outside the banking industry where you see uh, an innovation that's going to have that kind of an impact where I had my sons go with me to drop, make a deposit at a bank. It's the only time in their life they were inside a bank. They're 16 years old. And uh, it used to be a weekly event for us, right? You'd have to go to the bank to get some money. Did you guys go to deposit a check or a cash amount? It was depositing, yeah, it was a cashier's check that we had to deposit. Yeah, I would argue that you don't need to go in for that either. You could have done it uh, with your with your mobile app. Yeah, I'm showing my age. I wanted to make sure it got deposited, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, there are a few potential. Uh, there are a few potential ideas like that. So, so I think, uh, and and these are not nothing like you no know, new insights, so to speak. There are people already thinking about this, talking about this. If you think in in broader media as well is like a distributed ledger-based ecosystem. So like smart contracts, real-time money movement, things of that nature. They definitely have a, a huge uh, opportunity in terms of being able to invert some of those things that we take for granted, whether it's process, whether it is uh, a regulation, so to speak. Um, there, there's a huge room for capitalizing them in those scenarios, uh, in the banking industry specifically. Uh, outside of banking, I, I would say I am super fascinated by two uh, two specific uh, things that at least I'm, I'm personally uh, quite passionate about is uh, how can electrification, just generally what is happening with automobiles, but in a, in a broader sense, how does that translate back into decisions that every other industry makes around where they put up industry, for example, or factories or outlets? How do they do logistics? How do they, how do they actually how do you see the world when it comes to sort of let's say energy distribution or power distribution i think those those fundamental shifts in uh, the underlying sort of uh, way we power our lives is going to have uh, sort of as you climb up the hierarchy maslow's hierarchy you will have different impacts to different industry i think that is very fundamental in the way it shifts things so yeah i mean it's a very abstract answer but i do think that there are there are many parallel forces at play outside of banking especially these kind of things around sort of clean energy, how you do energy distribution, and then it'll have a knock-on effect of what kind of decisions you make uh, around investment, where do you invest, how do you invest, where do you localize, where do you globalize, um, and that'll continue on in, in sort of a, a trajectory, which it, right now it's hard to predict, but I do think those will be fundamental shifts, if that makes sense.
It does. It does. Well, you also spoke previously about the impact of the millennial culture and gig workers and some of the things that you, you see having a significant impact. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that, specifically post-COVID, with the coming back to work, right? <laughs> Where just That seems like just a war on itself. So uh, what you, I, I'd love to get your thoughts. I, I know I gave you a big, wide piece there, so bite into wherever you feel like. So let's let's like unpack that a little bit and pick one piece at a time. I think the expectations that a typical gig worker, more as a function of their age and what time period they grew up in, is different from anything that we have seen before. And not in a good or a bad way, it's just different, right? The sort of the the traditional uh, mental model, at least my and now I'm going to sort of you know show my age, so to speak. The traditional mental model would be that you have a certain sort of continuum to life. There are certain stages in life. Each stage in life kind of gives you a different need. Like at what point do you need a mortgage? At what point do you need, for example, wealth advisory? Or at what point do you need sort of retirement services and things of that sort? Just at least I'm th- I'm talking very narrowly from banking as an industry, for example, or financial services. But that, that sort of expands in every form or shape. Like how do you do work? Like why is there an expectation of physical proximity when it comes to work to begin with, right? We kind of lived through 18 months or so where physical proximity was not real, but it's not like the world ended. We were, like it was bad, but we still did stuff. We did launch, we did work, we did all of that. Uh, and then there is the, the difference of opinion where people believe that, oh, that was temporary and it was okay because it was temporary. But in that process, you're losing the ethos of the company or the culture of the company. What differentiates a person who walks in, logs into the same looks at the same screen, works for company A versus company B. Does it make us all a mercenary for hire, as an example, right? Like what binds that worker to any particular individual organization? And I think the uh, the first assumption that we have to do away with is expecting that things will play out the way they have in some way, form or shape in the past. They won't, very likely. Um, the notion of a gig worker is exactly that, which is who are you loyal to? You are loyal to, or as an individual, you are loyal to your life's outcomes and you are loyal to your skill or your uh, niche sort of passion as opposed to a, a company. And you will see this manifest in choices like, do I want a permanent employment with a company or can I still make that kind of money but not be tied to any one individual organization? The moment you make that forking decision from, from a gig worker standpoint, to make the moment you make that decision, then their need structure changes as well. How do you enable them? How do they do financials? I'll bring it back to financials. Like, how do you do, how do you do financial planning for somebody whose income predictability is completely off the chart versus what you would have expected in the past? Are all the sort of first principles that you've been using to build a portfolio for somebody like that still applicable? But if they're not applicable, what is? Like, how do you bring them to the point where they still they still have those needs? They're just coming up at a different point in time and they sort of articulate themselves in a different way. Um, so I think that will change a lot of the sort of way we do services uh, from a financial services standpoint for them, as well as things around us, like insurance is going to change a lot. Uh, home industry or mortgage industries have to change a lot. The way we do risk under uh, underwriting or risk profiling for these workers is going to be completely different. Like. Today, we, when we do any sort of a large transaction, we look at past to sort of make a, a judgment on like, will there be a, a risk to this interaction in the future? But if your past is not representative of the future, in most cases, how are you going to make the judgment call? 
like what kind of what kind of things do you have to gather more from a data standpoint as well as insight standpoint to be able to make those kind of uh, you know risk decisions, underwriting decisions, financial decisions, and so forth. So I think it will it will shift. It will shift a lot of our current thinking. Um, I don't know how. Obviously, obviously everybody is waiting to watch this movie, but definitely, definitely the one thing I would say it will change. Just don't know how it will change. And the success of any anybody participating in this ecosystem will be defined again. Goes back to your first question: is like how quickly can you adapt to that change? If you're going to get in your own way of that change, then you're going to fall by the wayside. Doesn't matter how big you are. Doesn't matter how how much legacy you have. Doesn't matter how sort of storied name you have. Anybody who's not able to keep up with that changing macro picture won't be around. At least not the way it is today. They won't be around. Uh, new players will fill that vacuum. Maybe some of the startups today who are thinking about this will become the behemoths of tomorrow. I mean, you don't know. It is interesting to think how much has changed. I know we hear the same thing. I've heard from a, a number of organizations that you know the culture you know is is dissipating. Or I struggle with that sometimes, knowing that the culture at many organizations isn't an actful behavior. Right? That's not a willful behavior to like establish a culture. Right? Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about if you ever read Enron's core values, uh, you'd see that they are uh, completely diametric to diametrically opposing to how they actually operated. So I wonder sometimes about that. Of like, I, I do think that culture and vision and, and things uh, they're real assets for for organizations. But I, I wonder how many are actually really investing in that, especially in publicly traded companies when their focus is much smaller than what I would say a visionary-led organization, right? They're generally quarterly driven as opposed to, you know, a Bezos who he's, he's thinking in quarter centuries, not quarter of a year. Right, right. So I, I think, uh, I mean, if, if I were to venture in a sort of my opinion on this one, I think there are, first of all, I don't think any company has a monoculture, meaning there is no monolithic culture across any company, except for some very small companies where, there is a degree of uh, sort of cohesion which is not practically possible in a company after a certain size or scale. So most companies, after they reach a certain scale, have you know microcultures all over the place. What I think people imply, or at least that's what I imply when I say culture as a binding ecosystem, is just common value system around. Hey, we all collectively agree that this is a right statement. How we go about it could be a function of context, could be a function of how we approach that problem and could be those, those variations of it. But I think what you're hinting at is slightly, slightly more macro as well, which is like as a company, if you don't have that shared value system, like if we cannot agree with a statement, regardless of how we go about it, but as long as we are all agreeing that we are here in, in our case, for example, we're all here, here to improve the financial health of our customers. If we can't agree with that statement, I think we should stop trying to give lip, uh, lip service to culture. At that point, it's not about culture. Then it's all about whatever it is that we are doing, right? Uh, and then it's very tactical. There are few companies, few firms, uh, or most firms actually two pieces. So two, the most firms will say we have a culture, whether it is a is a well articulated top down culture or, or just organically formed, and then I'm just giving it some words is where I think it sort of differentiates. And tying it back to our previous exchange is like, 
the hypothesis with people who say, hey, remote working is not a good thing, is that they somehow feel that proximity drives that culture. Now, my opinion of it is that you cannot drive a culture unless you know what it is and, and unless you know where you're going with it. And, and you know, you could find ways to do it even with remote. There are enough examples of that. But yeah, I, uh, I mean, I'm going around a long way to come back to the point where it's like, I think whether culture is articulated explicitly and being worked on explicitly or is bottoms up and very organic, every firm has a culture of some kind, good, bad, or indifferent. The argument over here is how can you actually build that good culture where there is a degree of cohesion, not very tightly coupled, coupled thing, but like a degree of cohesion where people, when you know, independently making a choice, they will kind of net out in the same ballpark because the principles that are kind of guiding those decisions are similar. If you don't have that sort of a, a sort of a similarity in guiding principles, then yeah, you will make decisions all over the place. And there are a lot of examples of that. Agreed. And I think uh, to your point is, I, I, I think either it's either an intentional culture or an unintentional culture, right? You do have a culture, right? Was it defined? Is it reinforced? Is it something that you're trying to grow, right? Or is it just left up to individual groups, whatever, yeah. whatever the team's composite is? Yeah, exactly. So, and again, I, I totally agree. When you get into the larger organizations, those microculture concepts, right? Uh, even when you look at the United States military, right? You've got, they very focused on what they do, but the 10th mountain is going to do something a whole different than the CBs and they're going to have their own core values. And, but the, the end game is the, the same thing, the overall protection and, you know, security for the United States of America. But what they do and how they maximize their culture is obviously going to be very different. Well, I was actually going to ask, just out of curiosity, have you had to onboard anyone remotely with with COVID and, and operating remotely, of course, and how have you acclimated those folks to your culture? So I have, like, in fact, a month ago, uh, one of my direct reports joined from outside banking and outside Wells Fargo, obviously. They're still going through what I would call the onboarding. We typically look at it as a 60-day, 90-day exercise. I mean, I, I, I'm probably guessing how it'll net out. I do think uh, it'll get to a point where this person in question will have to travel a bit now, aggressively now that things are opening up to make some of those uh, sort of uh, connections, have some of those you know physical interactions with people, uh, meet them face to face, so to speak. Uh, but it is uh, hit and miss depending on uh, how you how you go about it, right? If you if you join a new company a new industry, certainly, but like if you joined a new company in the middle of the pandemic, I don't know how much of the sort of the value systems that we were talking about, you're absorbing, you're still operating for most part, probably operating with the rubric of what you had before. And then you're trying to piece together uh, a little bit of, okay, what is different about this place? How do, how, how does my approach need to differ here versus what it was in the previous place? And so you will see a lot of conversations about, oh, in my previous place, we used to do it like this. And which is okay, right? I mean, it's not the best conversation to have six months into a new role, but nonetheless, it is still okay to be able to sort of do a compare and contrast to say, hey, in the previous place where I have a found a, like a, a routing and how I make decisions or how I make choices, how does it differ here? Because I don't know. Um, and I think the the way this will previously it would have taken, let's say, four or five months for somebody to acclimatize. Now it'll take longer. It'll take maybe a year. Maybe it'll take a little bit more than to get to the point where they feel the same degree of connection. 
So it's probably not as organic as it had been. It's much more inorganic is, is what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, because I think I think for most part, the amount of uh, culture you imbibe in a protracted conversation is very different from what you imbibe in sort of informal interactions, right? which right now are not happening. And I don't think it's about a new company or anything. Like if you just switch teams as well, I think you'll have the same uh, sort of experience. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I think the question that Patrick was referring to earlier, we always like to ask, you know, who are your mentors? Oh, I have a long list. Uh, I, so how do I put it? I would say I would say I have um, I have been lucky. Uh, many people have been. I have also been very lucky in having uh, sort of uh, people who believed, even though I had, hadn't actually done it yet, uh, in uh, doing new things uh, at that spot. So. Uh, my current uh, leadership teams about Charlie and Saul, they they spend time with us, but again, from with me, and as much as as much as given the space that I'm operating in, I'm the one who's basically going like, yeah, we did it like this in the past, but we shouldn't be doing it like this in the future, right? For them to to trust my judgment call on that, on being able to sort of play with me along on that journey, uh, like oh, if this guy, this guy is gonna get it wrong, we are all going to go down the wrong path. So the fact that they are believing and the fact that they actually play along is a big deal. That's a, uh, it's a big help. I have uh, also worked with a few other people outside the industry who have a perspective not formed by having been in one industry for a long time. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but these are people from like the entertainment industry, people who work in technology industry who have been able to sort of give me an outside in perspective, which organically, I would not have been able to sort of build by myself because I'm not sort of in those conversations all the time. Uh, so I would say uh, if you if your question behind the question was, how do you actually even know that there's somebody who can mentor you? It doesn't have to be a formal thing. I would say just look for people who are going to question you in a way that you didn't expect to be questioned. Right? Or are going to actually ask you for a perspective which you didn't know you you had to have. Right. And then like if you sort of index on that a little bit, spend time in that space a little bit, you will also get the point of view. OK, why is it that he or she is asking the way she is that sort of builds your uh, thinking capabilities and your muscles? Right. Thank you. That's great stuff. I think it, one thing that always impresses me with uh, people who have had the amount of success like you is their willingness to invite others into their lives to question them. My wife thinks I have a very perverse affinity for these kitchen rescue shows and the pattern is pretty clear that uh, the kitchens are terrible because the chefs absolutely will not self-analyze themselves or like do any remote questioning of like whether or not their pizza from 1992 is still relevant today and it's a it's a it's just so clear the line for me of like people who right? Are constantly, you mentioned insecurity, but I think there's a healthy level of insecurity that needs to be there for growth, right? You have to have some lack of confidence to actually analyze yourself with some honesty to say, hey, you know, and then even more so to have the strength to invite other more successful people in your life <laughs> to point at your your shortcomings. And I think that that says a lot about you uh, and your, your willingness and your 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 commitment to improvement, right? And innovation requires that type of vigorous and, and somewhat destructive, right? That creative destructive mentality of like, uh, we have to get to the future by destroying what's made us successful this far. 
Yeah, no, I think, uh, thank you for the kind words, by the way, but it reminds me of, uh, uh, I'm not going to give the book and all that stuff uh, in this case, but there's a there's an anecdote of a military uh, sort of situation a few years ago where there was a there was a spec ops force going deep into the, behind the enemy territory and they found no resistance as they were going. That spooked them. It's like, how the heck am I not getting resistance here? <laughs> and they sort of backed out a little bit. And that was good because it was an ambush waiting for them. I think that that sort of, uh, in, in my case, I, I draw a parallel to that, which is like, when I don't get a lot of questions, I feel like, why is nobody sort of, w- what makes everybody think that this is okay? I think if nobody's asking, I might as well like, you know, go red team on myself, like figure out what's going on there. But I think, I think by and large, I think it's, 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 yes, it is uncomfortable to be in those situations, but, you know, over a period of time, uh, either because you're forced into it or you are naturally predispositioned for it. I am not, but I have been forced into those situations before where you bring in enough uh, sort of outside in perspective or you do it yourself. Like if you are capable of like sort of, you know, standing, taking a step back and going like, you know what, let me rethink this whole thing. That is essential because without that, you will you will double down on things you should not double down and you will abandon things you should never abandon. So yeah, and you will still succeed or fail, but the probability of succeeding is higher than uh, if you were to just do, like, I, I believe so, so I'm just doing so. Hmm. That's great. Uh, one of my favorite authors has this philosophy of to be successful, you, you know, you have to make decisions and it'd be great if you made correct decisions. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as anybody who's been in a leadership position knows, no one's given that. Right. Of like, how do you make a good decision? And he's actually quite serious about this concept of like, you have to make good decisions. And part of that is taking it seriously and learning. But I also think like you do, opening the, expanding the the horizon of options by engaging others. Right. You know, especially when you talk about like anybody's been in software IT understands if it's going too well, uh, that's a problem. Right. Something, something's up ahead. What are you missing? The unknown unknown. What are you missing? That's right. This is supposed to be frictionful when it's not put your head on a swivel. Because uh, my opinion, to your point, is something's hunting you. You don't know what it is, but it's coming. Right. It's probably going to, let's find out, let's find out sooner what's coming. But that's uh, no, really great stuff. One last concept, because I, I think you touch on it. And I, I hear this a lot when I talk to people, uh, especially successful people, you know, that, that uh, imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome is something that I think is uh, one of those things that we really need to talk about more, especially for people who are pushing hard, right? Everybody has it, right? Do you feel like an imposter sometimes? Do you get that as you're going through this? You have doubts of like, why did I think I could do this? Yeah. I mean, my, the way it manifests for me is I don't think fake it till you make it is a bad thing. Like, I, I genuinely don't believe that's a bad thing. Um, what is bad is you not knowing that you're faking it. Right? So I think, I think that is... Ooh, there's a whole thing right there. Yeah, that's a that, whole nother podcast. Oh, my God. Are, delusion or intentional? Like, ooh. No, I think, I think it's self-awareness, right? So to, to a large extent, I think that the impost, imposter syndrome, like if, if the way you frame the question, if... If any person, and mean specific as an example, if I'm able to tell that, hey, look, this is not real versus this is real, I think that's okay, right? Because then you can then uh, employ your higher faculties and go like, this is needed because of whatever. So fake it till you make it is real. There are enough examples across the industries where you can say that 
trying to be certain way leads you to be that way um but the way you phrase the question i do take it in that context like sometimes i go like this is not the real one but we're going to keep at it till we get to the point where that becomes organic for us as a team as an individual as a group and i don't think it's a bad thing i definitely don't think it's a bad thing now it is bad though if you don't know that you you kind of are in that bucket trying to look like something that you're not is very different from trying to be something you're not yet that's very interesting there was a, uh, a show about fire island did you ever see that on i think it was on hbo it's about the big fire island uh music thing the guy running is just completely deluded out of his mind on like what he was going to be able to pull off and to your point of like I wrestled with this of like the fake to make it like every good entrepreneur has that component built in of like you have to, right? Like if you if you're gonna like sit back and go, yeah, we really can't do this. It's like, uh, well, if it was done, you're not an entrepreneur anymore. You're just an imitator, right? So there, there. But then I thought about like the degrees of fake it till make it, right? Or you know, the lily pad is just a little too far. Right. Like, you know, you got to find a couple of smaller lily pads, not the big jump there. And so when I think about the Fire Island where it's like, oh, we're going to do all this and no capability to do it, never done it before, doesn't have the money or the intelligence or the organizational structure or anything. Or um, the, the blood one with the, the testing scenario where that was oh, clearly, yeah. right, delusion. Right. And I think that's what, what you're talking about is somebody who's completely not even anchored in the reality of like, you don't even know you're faking it, right? You're you're so deluded, right? So it's I love your perspective because I've always thought, well, maybe it was just a lily pad too far, but maybe it's more that just not even understanding. You don't even know the lily pad's not real. Yeah, to some extent, right? I mean, the example you use with the the like Theranos versus like 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 take SpaceX as an example, right? I don't think in the beginning two years anybody would have argued that Elon Musk was talking reality. I mean, not, not to say that, you know, he might be actually doing something else right now as well. But my, my point is, there is that suspension of disbelief that has to go in when you take such a big endeavor. But then what sort of stops you from losing yourself in that disbelief is like, you still know the difference between, okay, this is ambitious versus I believe that I've already done it. Like, like, goes back again to the point of like, at what point do you detach yourself and go like, it's hard and it's hard because nobody has done it and we're going to keep at it versus I believe you've already done it. We deserve everything which comes with it and we are here. <laughs> right. Oh man, that's great stuff. Well, I, I know we probably keep going for like another, I don't know, 50 years, but uh, I, I thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, great perspective. I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation, touched a lot of really important topics. So I do think the the leadership and faking it till you make it, I think those are real things. And I think it's what leaders need to do, right? You got to live in the future. So uh, we also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.